Welcome to SCBWI's podcast conversations, where we talk with some of the leading creative and business figures in our industry. Today, Theo Baker sits down with New York Times bestselling and Newbery Medal winning author, Erin Entrada Kelly. Let's listen in. We're talking today with Erin Entrada Kelly, who is the new new Newbery winner for her wonderful book, Hello Universe. She has, also has a new book. It's out now. And it's called You Go First. It's about online Scrabble, which I love because I spent about nine months doing nothing but playing Scrabble. Almost ruined my entire life. So I'm over that now. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> she's also written two other books for young readers. And we're really thrilled to be talking to you today. What kind of journalism did you do? I read about it, but I didn't go to I, I was a newspaper journalist for 10 years in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And then I, I mostly covered features. Um, the last big story I covered as a journalist was Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And then I was a magazine editor for about eight years. So you were a real newspaper journalist. I, I have was. Such an intellectual crush on newspaper journalists. I don't. How was that? Was it amazing? What, what was that like? It was amazing. It's it's definitely. I've had. I've been lucky that I've had a lot of jobs that I really loved in my professional career. Um, but nothing even comes close to journalism. I mean, every day is different. There's a lot of freedom. It's not like, you know, 8 to 5 or 9 to 5. Oh. It's depending on when you do interviews. And I think the best thing, though, is that you meet people that you would never meet mm. in, in regular life in a million years. You know, people who live in different neighborhoods than you, people who are going through different experiences than you. And um, I have gone into... I did a series of stories on cold cases, mm-hmm. so I've gone with cops into like um, old crime scenes, and I've gone to people's houses in the marsh after the hurricane, and um, obviously those are things that you don't do unless you're in that position. So. And how did you get, the, one thing that, you know, in my alternate life, I'm a, I'm a newspaper reporter, but in that alternate life, there's a hurdle which I can never cross, which is how do I just go up to ran strangers mm-hmm. and get them to start talking to me. And that kind of moxie or nerve that it takes to just push a story. What, what have, can you, I, I'm just curious about kind of like how you learn to just sort of find sources and talk to them and break them open. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was never in too many positions where I knew, I, I was in a few where I knew I'd have to ask someone a very uncomfortable question, like a confrontational question. Mm. And in those cases, I would get very nervous. But as far as interviewing people on the street or for feature stories or in neighborhoods, I think you get a sense of, just by people watching, you know, as writers are good people watchers, right? Um, You kind of get a sense of who will probably talk to you and who may not, just Mm. by their body language. And what I would try to do is I would go up to people, show them my badge, and be very friendly, and I wouldn't start, I noticed that people can get nervous when you start writing down what they're saying, so I would usually wait until we've talked for a little bit before I started writing in my notebook, Mm -hmm. you know, just so they wouldn't get, because people get nervous with the the notebook between you. Here's the record. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But What is this person going to say about me? (laughs) Exactly, yeah, but I actually loved that. I loved walking up to people and um, asking them for their thoughts on what's going on right now or calling people up and asking them if they'd like to be interviewed. And, um, you know, sometimes they don't, you know, they're not interested or they're they're kind of combative. But other times they're, 
you know, very polite. And Most people want to talk to a yeah. newspaper person. I think if you go up and you're friendly, you know, like, like with anything in life, if you're a friendly person and you're respectful of their time and their thoughts and you really want to hear what they have to say, most people are open to that. I mean, people just want to be heard generally, right? And yeah. so if they have an opportunity to be heard, then I find that a lot of times they'll want to take it. Yeah. So you work. You said you worked in news. You were a reporter for eight years. Something with and then a, you were in magazines. So what I'm seeing is basically your job all that time is sitting in front of words. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about just the? It's always been. I've always kind of wondered how fluid people who work in kind of newspapers or magazines, how fluid they become with just dealing with big blocks of text all day, mm-hmm. you know, just the comfort level of that. Can you, is there anything sure. to that? Yeah, I think that there's there's a plus and minus with it. Um, it can be it can be difficult, especially I find when I worked um, at the newspaper. It can be difficult to work on fiction simultaneously, which was always my goal. Mm. You know, my goal was always to have a career working with words, and I wanted to be a journalist. But I knew that I would be writing on the side, and and that was my ultimate goal. But it can be difficult only because with you know newspapers, it's a very quick turnaround, mm. and it's it's like X number of uh, spaces and space in the newspaper and um, you're talking to people all day. You're playing with words all day, and it and it was difficult when I was in it to switch my brain and to say, okay, I have, I can be more lyrical. I can use mm-hmm. metaphors if I want to, and it took me a while to figure out what exactly my style of writing was. Um, once you take away the newspaper part of it, um, once I left the newspaper business, I was able to take the skills that I learned. Um, and transfer them into my books. Not so much writing, because mm-hmm. I had to find my, I really had to find my fiction voice. But the great, wonderful thing about newspaper uh, background is that you learn how to write quickly. Mm-hmm. You learn how to revise, and you learn how to edit yourself. And not to be yeah. precious about it, Exactly. Right? And And you also learn how to take feedback, because, you know, your editor is going to, I, my editor used to call me into his office and have me stand over his shoulder and watch watch me. I mean, I would watch him edit my work. And those are all skills that have been pretty much invaluable to me as a as a novelist because I don't um, – my feelings aren't hurt easily. Mm-hmm. You know, I love to revise. I write quickly. I revise quickly. Because um, you got to get it done. There's yeah. a deadline. you got to – Yeah. There's somebody waiting for you. Exactly. Was your editor really mean and – no, no, he was great. <laughs> no, he was—he wasn't mean, but he was uh, firm and took his job very seriously. But he was not mean, thankfully. Uh, he wasn't like the newspaper yeah. guys on TV. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience, and it, I mean, it was such a great job, a great experience, and it's really helped me as a as a writer, as a full time writer. One last question about that: How long did it? And then we'll we'll get into. I just this is more. How long did it take you um, to get used to your editor just ripping your pieces apart every day before it stopped really hurting every time? Honestly, I feel I feel like one of the traits that I have that um, that has helped me tremendously is that I have been I'm fairly impervious to uh, criticism as far as 
Um, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't hurt my feelings, but um, I've been writing. I've been wanting to be a writer since I was a very little kid, and so I have always longed for and thirsted for feedback. Mm. Someone tell me what you think. How can I be better? And so when you go in with that mindset of knowing that, okay, nothing I write is going to be perfect. It can always be better. And you go in with the mindset of this is to make me better instead of let me see all the ways that I screwed up. Um, those are two very different mindsets. Mm -hmm. So even when I went uh, to the newspaper, I was very determined. I tend to be a very, you know, determined person. So I walked in there and I and I started at the bottom as a proofreader and I said, uh, give me assignments. The assignments people didn't want, want, I would take them. And whenever I'd write the stories, I would ask my editor, can I watch you edit it? Can, you know, I just want to learn because that's how you get better, yeah. right? Constantly, constantly evolving. That's impressive. Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if only, well, we could all kind of, not because everything's an attack on everyone. Every attack feels personal. It you does. Know? But it's not personal. And I think no you learn. No one cares about you. you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody cares. I mean, honestly. Nobody's out to get you, right? For the most part, no. And I think you learn, especially as a writer, and the more you do it and the longer you do it, you learn which feedback um, to take with you into your work and which feedback is is maybe just not um, in line with your personal vision for your own work. So, you know, it's it's all about making yourself better. And if you focus on those negative, nitpicky things mm. instead of the bigger picture, then, you know, you just hold yourself back ultimately, I think. I was wondering if you could just kind of tell me a little bit about where you come from and sure. how do you want to answer that. Absolutely. So I was born in Kansas, but I grew up in South Louisiana. Um, my parents, my father is from Kansas and my mother is from the Philippines. And where I grew up, it's, it's kind of a mid-sized town. There weren't very many um, immigrant families. In fact, I believe ours was the only one in the neighborhood. Um, and there are very, very few Filipinos. So when I was growing up, I felt very much you know, like an outsider, mm -hmm. and I didn't look like any of the kids at my school, and so I was teased a lot, and, I, you know, I was a very, very sensitive kid, you know, I thought that um, even if I put, like, a glass on a table, I would do it softly, because I didn't want to hurt the table's feelings, <laughs> so it was a very sensitive way to live, so as you can imagine, when I was being teased and bullied, it, it greatly affected me, and it kind of colored my whole upbringing in, in Lake Charles and then um, Louisiana um, and really informed a lot of my books and then is there one I'll tell you mine is there one archetype one like horrible thing that somebody said to you that you still kind of keep with you I'll tell you mine if you want well we can exchange and then we'll move on yeah yeah <laughs> you know what there's actually there's actually several you know I mean kids would ask me if my family ate dog Mm -hmm. um, anytime you're called ugly, I think that's something that sticks with you, especially yeah. when you're a girl, unfortunately, more so. But, um, and I think the biggest thing was uh, not necessarily words, but actions, because people would uh, take their fingers and like make oh. their slant, make slanty eyes, and um, act like they were speaking. I guess what they were trying to mimic Chinese. Um, those kinds of things. The things that there's no defense for. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, Yeah. it was my first one where a kid said to me, you're so ugly you made that plant die. Oh, you know, my and, gosh. And, and yeah. I remember thinking, 
this is brutal. That, and, yeah. and there's no argue. I can't say any, this is a new type of thing that I've never felt before. Yes. Right? That kind yes. of brutality. Exactly. And you know what? It, it's um, Whenever I was working at the newspaper, I had a friend, and she told me a story. And at the time she told the story, I'm guessing she was about 30. She told me that when she was in elementary school, the kids in her school made a list of the ugliest girls. And she was number one on the list. And it was in fourth grade that this happened to her, and, it, and now she's 30. Well, not now, but at the time she told me this story, she was 30, and she remembered it, and it was very palpable to her. And that was part of the uh, impetus for Blackbird Fly, my first book where that happens to Apple, the main character. Um, so the things that happen to us when we're kids, I mean, they really stay with us for better or worse, right? Yeah, yeah no one gets out unscathed. <laughs> so you were talking about how you grew up in uh, small part of Louisiana. Uh, so you went to, when did you leave Louisiana? Or could you just talk, tell me, because now you went to Philadelphia. So yes, point. I lived I, at around uh, 2011. I moved to the Philadelphia area. So you stayed around in Louisiana, like, the, uh, you, did you go to school around there? I or? did. I, went, I got my um, degree from McNeese State University there oh, in, in yeah. liberal arts and women's studies. And they have a good writing program, too. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they have an excellent MFA program. And then around 2011, I moved. I had wanted to leave Louisiana for a long time. I've always wanted to live on the East Coast, uh, be close to New York, be, be close to uh, publishing and mm -hmm. arts and entertainment and goings-on and writing communities. Um, so I actually went to Rosemont College, which is in Philadelphia, got my MFA from there, and now I teach there. And now I live in Delaware. I'm a new Delawarean, I guess is what they're called. <laughs> Nobody knows, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so when did you, so you were, you were working, you were working at the paper and then mm -hmm. you were working in magazines mm -hmm. and were you writing fiction? Could you just tell me about your journey to how you, um, and it, it's okay if it, parallels what we've already gone through. Yeah. Uh, but you just take me up to when you first started getting either good or sold. Sure. Uh, so I started writing when I was really young. So since I was eight years old, probably all the way till now, I've never stopped writing. Um, I've never had a lull, but, um, but obviously it took me a while to figure out what I had to say. So for a long time, I couldn't you know, once once we get into adulthood and I'm really trying to hone my craft, I was also a single mom and I was going to school and I was working. So um, basically I was, you know, craft books were kind of my go-to. Mm -hmm. And anytime uh, McNeese had some kind of like um, community class, writing class, I would take it. And friends whose uh, opinions I valued, I would ask them to read my stuff. And I was having trouble finishing full-length manuscripts, though. So I started writing short stories. And that's when I really started kind of finding my, my voice and my style because uh, my first publication was short stories. And I published several of them. And as I was writing these short stories, I realized that most of them had a uh, protagonist who was between the ages of 8 and 12. Mm. There was something about that age that was drawing me and they were all coming of age stories uh, written for adults mm -hmm. but they all had this, this main character who was a kid and I thought there was really something to that. There's some reason why I'm drawn to that age and so 
uh, once I started writing middle grade and figuring out what I had to say to the world, um, that's when I really kind of found my footing. And I went the traditional route. I got an agent in, um, I guess it was 2013, and I sold Blackbird Fly in 2014. Mm. Can yeah. you tell me about the first thing you, the first, probably like a little literary journal or something? So I, a lot of people always are like, that was actually the one that like was the most exciting. Could you just tell me about the first things you got published? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the first short story I ever got published was, it's called The Legend of Fidella, and it was published in a now defunct but wonderful uh, literary magazine called Story Philippines. Uh, it was a nationwide literary mag in the Philippines, and I actually used that, kind of like the bones and skeletons of that story, to build a, the fantasy that I'm working on now, which comes out next year. Okay. So it all kind of comes full circle. But interestingly, um, I think the most excited I, I ever was at that period of my life wasn't when I got that published. The f most excited I was was I was mailing out, because, you know, this was snail mail days. Mm -hmm. I was mailing all these short stories out, and I would get form letter, form letter, yeah. form letter. And then finally one day I got a postcard, which I framed. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the guy's name. It was Paul Augusto. And he wrote a handwritten note, and it, and it said, Dear Aaron, um, I'm sorry we can't publish your short story, but I want you to know that it was in the, uh, the final cut, mm. and we would love to read more of your work. And I got so happy. I framed it. I was happy. And people would ask me, why, are you, why did you frame a re rejection letter? And I That's said, not it's a not a rejection. <laughs> it's, it's the best. I mean, someone took time to read and really consider my book and took time to write me a note. Mm -hmm. And after getting all these form letters, uh, you know, that one postcard, you know, was enough to light a fire and say, wait a minute, maybe you will. You're almost there. Yeah. Because you, know? you know as a, a newspaper person how busy everyone is. Yeah. How cynical they can be in publications. Yes. And as a magazine person. Yes. Right. Something comes in the mirror. Oh. Yes. You, right? <laughs> you know, I, I just, for the listeners, I just made kind of a face that was, <laughs> I won't even look at this, this stuff. That's, right? You know, yeah. You, and so you knew that, like, to break through that pile is a significant accomplishment. Yes. And so what, could you talk about a little, because um, I'm one of like, like Hemingway, an old guy, he's, he's talked about how being a journalist, you know, helped him really write nice declarative sentences. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, and you still have like in your fiction, you'll say, so-and-so, age 12. You know, it, I, I, <laughs> I feel that callback to, you know, mm -hmm. like a, but it doesn't, it seems, you don't write, you know, that kind of short, nothing but the facts, ma'am. Yeah, sentences. no. So could you talk about how your style diverged from the kind of writing you were doing uh, yeah. formatively? I think that um, it diverged mostly through, you know, it's, it's the old cliche that a good writer is a good reader. Mm -hmm. And it took me reading a lot of books, uh, learning from other writers, writing a lot of short stories. Another great thing about short stories is you can actually finish them. You know, whenever you're faced with a full-length manuscript, it can be really daunting to try to get to the end, especially if you don't have a publishing contract around the corner. 
Um, it's a lot to take on. Without, it is. It without is the, without the validation or the comfort of of having, you know, knowing that you have a deadline and it's going to be published. You know, it's a completely different feeling. So. I found my voice and my style a lot through writing short stories, um, doing writing prompts. You know, I would keep a, a journal, and for a while I thought, okay, I'm going to write in this journal about my daily life. And then I would realize I would only write in it when I was angry. So if I would pick up my journal later, I sound like the most miserable, angry woman who ever lived. But then I started doing writing prompts instead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I teach writing now, and I use, I'm a big believer in prompts. A lot of writers, you know, cringe at them because they're like, oh, I don't want to write on the spot. But that's how you find out what your style is, you know. Do you use a lot of metaphors? Do you use a lot of symbolism? Are your sentences long? Are they short? I mean, these are all things that are important to know about yourself as a writer. And so I learned it just from writing and writing and more writing and learning learning to diverge from that kind of fiction mindset mm -hmm. and take the best of what I, I learned. I mean, diverge from the journalist mindset and kind of take the good stuff, the quick turnaround, revising, feedback, and leave behind the stuff that could hinder me, like writing dragnet, just the facts kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I've read that you're very almost meticulously organized about how you write. That I've read about your... Well, actually, let's. I'm going to go back because one of the things that you mentioned was the short story and how that eventually became the bones of your debut novel. Can you talk about the transition from kind of adult to writing for 12-year-olds? Oh yeah. Um, and what you had, what you thought you had to do to do that, or anything that comes that's up. That's a good question, and I think for me it was. Um, it, it felt very organic. I didn't feel like, uh, I certainly didn't think, oh, okay, now I need to write write down, you know, because mm -hmm. you never want to write down. Um, but there's something about that age, well, I know what it is, that, that age is terrible. And <laughs> my middle school years were some of the worst years of my life. And because of that, um, and a lot of things that happened to me in middle school were turning points, certainly in my adolescence. So... Whenever you have something that's significant happen to you, you remember it. You know, anytime you have something major happen in your life, you remember what it feels like. Your smells can bring you back, songs, music. Um, so for me, because that, that period in my life was so so textured and rich in my memory still, it wasn't that difficult to go back and, and tap into that well and write from that, that perspective, even though theoretically... You know, I'm writing for young readers instead of adults. I didn't find it to be all that different. I think the biggest difference is that I don't think I would ever want to write an adult novel mm -hmm. just because I don't want to spend that much time with grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Grown-ups are boring. Nothing they're, happens They're to awful, them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're the worst. Right, well, it's, it's one of, I think is one of the reasons why a lot of grown-ups read books for kids now is because they're exciting, you know, yeah. and... and what happens when realistic fiction for grown-ups might <laughs> go to the mailbox? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Pick up the mail, maybe have an affair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get a divorce. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. That's I, what, what happens when you're 12, everything is life and death, right? Yes, Every that's true, life stakes, yeah. And so it's almost every day is there's trauma, there's trauma, you know, someone doesn't look at you. Yes. Oh, God, I'm dead. Yeah, know? exactly. And that's one thing that, that really bothers me is when adults um, 
you know, tell kids that, oh, well, wait till you get in the real world, or you don't have anything, wait till you have pro- real problems. And, or a real uh, boyfriend. Yeah, or... and, and that always kills me because th- those people, those young people, they live in a very, very real world with mm. real problems. And just because they're young doesn't mean that they don't have complex thoughts and belief systems and personalities just like you and I did, just like we all did when we were that age. And, you know, when you're 12, it's not puppy love to you. It's real love. And when adults dismiss it, uh, I feel like there there is a certain lack of respect. And if you're going to write for young readers or spend time with young people, you have to have some kind of mutual respect and not not patronize them, yeah. you know? Because to them, it is real love. It's not puppy love. It's more real than yeah, exactly. grown-ups feel. Exactly, it is. It really is. I could say that. I mean, no disrespect to our wives and husbands, <laughs> but <laughs> the first one, that's the one that really hits you. you yeah, know? it um, is, yes. So you said, like, you made this transition from writing about, first you were, you know, writing magazines and, and feature writing, and then you get start writing fiction short fiction for young adults, uh, for, for grown-ups, mm-hmm. never been able to do short fiction. So there's so much you got to... It's jam. pretty tricky, yeah. Right? It's a, anyway, and so then you start writing long fiction for, for kids, and, and that all felt like a natural progression to you. And so how did you go about, I don't know, I guess just like the business of that, or situating yourself to have a career that would be satisfying for you? Mm, that's a that. great question. So I have always been um, fiercely, I guess I'll say, goal-oriented. So even as early as high school, I knew, well, as early as elementary school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. But, of course, when I was in elementary school, I thought, oh, I'm just going to be Judy Bloom, and it's going to be great. Because uh, <laughs> you figure that's how it just happens, right? You just get a book published. Um, but as I got older, of course, I realized realistically I can't just be a novelist. I have to have a job. Um, so I pretty much um, lined up my cards as best I could to have a career in um, journalism because I knew that was something I was passionate about and it was still working with words and then I could write during my free time. Um, I had some hurdles because... I unexpectedly became a single mother, and then so now I can only go to school part time. Mm-hmm. And um, I like to think what I made up for, what I lacked in, you know, like practical access to stuff, like going to school full time, I made it for Moxie, right? So yeah. when the paper was hiring a proofreader, you know, I just marched in there with my resume at 18, and I had no qualifications, of course. The only thing I had was um, that I wanted to be a journalist and that I had a perfect ACT score in English. Those are the only things I had. Um, but I acted like um, I belonged there, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of walked in with this determination. And my walked editor, Brett, in. yeah, yeah, and my editor, Brett, hired me. Um, and there were there were several applicants for the proofreader job. Most of them were retired English teacher people who had way more qualifications. But he uh, he took a chance basically. And and just a few years ago, you know, I, I reached out to him just to let him know that, you know, you took a chance on me and you changed the whole course of my life because I was a single mom. 
what are the chances I would get a job at a newspaper? Probably pretty slim. Mm. But once I was in there, I mean, you couldn't shut me up. I was like, yeah, send me on this assignment. I'll do this work. What are you guys working on over yeah. here? Let me, <laughs> yeah, let, let me, me get I'm, into that. I want to go in the press room. I want to see how the newspaper runs. How do you lay out pages? I wanted to learn everything I could about it because I was genuinely interested. And so the same with fiction and writing. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as early as middle school, I was getting those huge writer's market you know, books and oh. looking at, and I don't know what I thought I was doing. I think I probably thought I was good enough to publish did something, you, which I wasn't. Did you send something to the New Yorker at one point? When no. no. <laughs> Surprisingly, <laughs> I did not. But I did have, like, I would highlight. I, I mean, um, so one thing that, that is frustrating, I think, is whenever um, I see, you know, aspiring, uh, people who are aspiring to be published authors um, who want to write the books, but um, y- it takes a lot of other kinds of work. If you're truly passionate about it, um, you'll research how to, you know, how to get an agent. I mean, we have Google now. You yeah. can just look it up. How do I get an agent? How do I write a query letter? Um, what do I do about this? Um, and so that's what I did. You know, of course, we, the internet wasn't wasn't a, a huge thing quite yet. But um, so I've pretty much tried to line everything up the way that I wanted it to go. Obviously, I didn't plan for, let me just win the Newberry. I mean, obviously, that's not a thing that you think is going to happen. So I thought, well... But regardless of the Newberry, you were set up... I with was. A, with a, with a um, kind of a, a path that... that yeah. Was, that I had good to you got to write novels. And I did. Them. I did. And I also had, like I said, very fortunate to have day jobs that I really liked. I mean, and very few people can say that, right? So... Um, when I moved up here, I worked as a, a copy editor in a job that I loved, uh, and I was editing, uh, it was for a Medicaid managed care company, so it was very different, but using similar skill sets, but not sucking my creative energy. Mm. Um, yeah, I want to ask you about that later, too. Yeah, and so I was able to do, I, I, did, I, I liked going to work, and I liked writing my books, and now I'm, I'm able to support myself just on... Uh, my fiction career alone, which is incredible, but I think it's all about you know uh, knowing what you want and really going after it. And there's a little bit of luck involved, I think. There's a little bit of timing involved, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a, about um, you know perseverance and, and resilience and all that good stuff, mm-hmm. and just diving in, you know, full force. If, if something you're passionate about, if you have a dream, I'm a big believer in having a dream. Um, but then being obsessive about yeah, so. like you know, going really going after it. Don't just want to be a writer because you think you know you have this romanticized view of what it means. I mean, really get in there, and if you really want to go after it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's what I did. You've been listening to part one of Theo Baker's conversation with Aaron and Trotta Kelly, but we're coming back with part two, and we hope you'll join us for that. I'm Lynn Oliver, and on behalf of all of us at SCBWI, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the SCBWI podcast. Today we continue our conversation with New York Times bestselling and Newbery Medal winning author Aaron and Trotta Kelly. Settle in for part two. One thing you were just mentioning, just in passing, about because you, you're someone who's had, you know, a day job and then the writer, is kind of 
keeping, not sucking out your creative juices. Because mm-hmm. we only have, in a given day, some people have more, some people have less, but it's, it's a finite amount of something. Yes. Whatever it is. Um, you know, most people, most people, it's about four hours of mm-hmm. solid creative work. Yes. Um, so how would you kind of keep that intellectual or creative energy to yourself while you're going, store it up, you're storing it up while you're going about your day so you could? That's a great question. So I found that as much as I loved working as a journalist, um, it, it did kind of uh, pull energy out of that creative well because you know you're writing you're you're interviewing people you're, it, it takes a lot of energy and once I left the newspaper business I, I found it was easier to focus on my fiction and so what I would do is um, I think it's different for everyone but as as recently as my most recent job I would you know wake up early in the morning and write I think it's about finding what time are you the most creative mm. For a lot of people, it's it's early in the morning, even though most people um, wouldn't claim that they're morning people. But um, like when it's still dark out early in the morning for you? Yeah, I would wake up like at five o'clock. You know, so it's not like four a.m. or something. Yeah. But um, everyone's everyone is active at different times, and I think it's about I think it's about um, building your creative life around you rather than trying to. Well, uh, for example. You know, some authors will say, I write from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., Monday through Friday. And someone else may hear that and say, oh, well, that's what I should try to do. I should try to do that 5 to 7 a.m. But maybe that's not the kind of person you are. It's all about finding what kind of writer you are and figuring out how to build your creative life around that. Now, the challenge is being, you know, a lot of people have kids mm-hmm. or and they're involved in like 500 things or... Um, stress of the day, and then you're tired at the end of the day. Um, in which case, I would I would often like I mean I probably shouldn't say this, but it doesn't matter now. But sometimes I would even write at work, like and email it to myself. I'm sure a lot of people do that. A lot of writers. Um, you gotta do what you gotta. You gotta do. do what you gotta do. Yeah, and and I would always have a notebook, and you don't have to sit down and write. You know, fifteen hundred the most glorious words that were ever written. Right. You could even be in the grocery store and jot down a paragraph of mildly incoherent notes that you can go back to later. Oh, that's, you a, know? Question. Yeah, that's a question I want to ask you because the muse can strike at any time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the idea can come. How, um, how, so like let's say you have an idea. Some people will write, think, I'll remember that. Of course they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will write down like five words of it. And then they don't really get it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, do you kind of, when something strikes, do you try to get it as fully as you can? Or can you just tell me about, like, when you're not at your writer's mm-hmm. desk with your writer's coffee or Diet right. Coke, with your writing pencil, like, well, how do you kind of deal with when the ideas come to you? I, it depends on what kind of idea it is. I'll try to write it down as fully as possible at that moment, and I usually text it to myself. Mm. So in my phone, I have all these text messages of all kinds of, not just random ideas, but books people have recommended to me, and I'll text to myself, and then I won't remember what they are. You know, I'll look, and I'll say, is this a TV show or a book? I don't remember what this is. Um, so usually that's what I do. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, one of the things about writing a novel, one of the great challenges is that 
it's an organiza organizational challenge. Mm -hmm. Almost because it's a, you know, the, the book might be 200 pages, but there might be a thousand pages that are floating around there. You know, yeah. like just organizing everything. And I, I've read that you're very organized about your process mm -hmm. and kind of plan out everything in advance, but leave some room for the. Could you actually just kind of speak about? Um, maybe we could just go through. I want to bring us out of like generalities. I, I wouldn't want you to talk about some <laughs> some generic novel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, why don't we talk about why don't we talk about your your you know Hello Universe? Sure. How, how you got about writing that, and we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of yeah, of, sure. We can kind of cover both of them at the same time. That sounds great. So with Hello Universe, all my books really start with a character. And so with Hello Universe, I, I got the idea while I was driving, which is where I get a lot of, that's where I do a lot of my wool gathering, as it's called, mm -hmm. more of my idea gathering. And I had an image of Virgil, and he's trapped in a well. And, well, actually, I saw him in a dark place, and then I, you know, eventually I teased it out, and this is all happening in my head. And once I have an idea that I feel like has legs or could be something, um, I'll get a notebook mm -hmm. and in this case I saw Virgil calling out for help and I saw another kid above ground and she's a she's a nice girl but she's not helping him and I thought why aren't you helping him and then I thought oh she can't hear him and so from that idea came everything kind of uh, grew out of that idea and so I go buy a notebook, and it has to be a notebook that's specifically suited for the idea, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to anyone else, but mm -hmm. the size matters, the page, the lines, I mean, everything. What, did, what kind did you buy for that one? Because I'm obsessive about notebooks. I am too. And for this one, I actually bought a very plain, um, one-subject, college-ruled notebooks. Just plain. As yeah, from yeah. the supermarket. Yes, kinda exactly. And I have to find good pens, of course. And then I kind of jot down the general big idea, and then the details kind of get sussed out the more I think about it, and then I'll write all those down too. So everything starts in a notebook. So when you had the idea, let's say for that, for, for Hello Universe, that first image, does that suggest to you the style that you're going to write it in as well? Or, or does that kind of image just sort of, are you always trying to stay true to that first image that kind of came to you, like the feeling of it or the emotional content Sometimes, of it? Sometimes, but I've noticed that at times the idea will evolve and take wings of its own and then fly, and then um, you have to tweak the original idea, mm -hmm. um, and then your your novel turns out to be something completely different. Um, and that happened with You Go First, actually. Mm -hmm. But with um, Hello Universe, um, one of the things that I do with every book that I write is I ask what my character is most afraid of. I think that's a, an important thing for all writers to ask because that's where you get your conflict, right? So with mm. Virgil, I knew he was afraid of the dark, which means being in a well is probably not the best thing for him. Um, and everything just kind of builds out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From that... From that original image. Yeah, or that, or their fear. Because yeah, their fear. Every yeah. character, every person is going through life, trying yes. not to have their their worst fear come true. Exactly. But and as a novelist, you're gonna you're gonna give it to them. Of right? course, yeah, you have to. Um, and so when you're writing, 
Hello Universe, did it feel, I mean, did you have the, um, could you draw on the kind of confidence that you've written these two novels before that? Did you feel like, oh, I kind of know what I'm doing a little bit now at this point? Yes and no. I think that, you know, you, you get into a groove because now, now I'm more, com- more comfortable with my style and I know what kind of writer I am, so it does make it easier. But I also think that, um, you know, obviously it, there's still struggles and there's still things that I, that I feel like, um, you know, weak points, strong points, just like any writer. I think it's also important for writers to know what their strengths and weaknesses are. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm really great at character development, but I'm not so good at setting. Or um, I'm great at pacing, but I'm not so good at this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you consciously try to work on your the, the parts that you believe are not your strengths? I do, I do, and that that's another benefit of having a really great editor. My editor's Virginia Duncan, and we have a fantastic relationship, and um, I think that's another reason why with each book I feel, I don't know if more confident is the word, more comfortable. I mm-hmm. think that's a better way to put it, and one of the reasons is because I'm learning as a writer with each book, but one of the big reasons why I'm learning is because I have this this woman who knows books uh, and is a fantastic editor who I respect. So she helps me see my work in in different ways and she challenges me. Um, So, you know, I'm never going to get to a point where I say, well, this is my seventh book, Virginia, so you may not touch any words. Mm. Um, It'll always be, what do you think? You know, I mean, Virginia's kind of like my... uh, kind of like the the teacher in school where I turn in my book and then I'm sitting there wondering what she thinks, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though I've had success to this point and, you know... You still never know, right? Oh, no, no. I mean, and I would never want to get to the point of, oh, well, you know, this is my best work. And <laughs> <laughs> clearly, you won't have any comments. Um, <laughs> well, it's something everyone always thinks about people who are successful or or even doing good work. They think, well... They must just be so happy with themselves all the time and just know that what they've done is, is great. Yeah. <laughs> and no, of course, that's probably that's, not. That doesn't happen. No, and that's another thing. That's the, that. No, because it's like whenever you're, you, you know, you start off, for me it was, oh, I just want to get a short story published. Then you get a short story published. Now it's something else. Oh, I want to get an agent. Then you get an agent. Now I need to have a book deal. You get a book deal. Now I need another book deal. So the, the needle is always going to be moving. Mm-hmm. So I think the trick in life and in this publishing business is to just be comfortable and and content with where you are but always strive for something bigger Mm -hmm. but it can it can be disheartening if you expect a lot of yourself and I think writers often do you know so um well now I want to be on the New York Times bestseller there's always going to be something yeah there'll always be another person who has more who has movie deals and like you know six figure for one book and you know um that's never going away. So, <laughs> so what? Can I ask you what is? I don't know. What's kind of? Could you? Are you able to pinpoint sort of what's animating you? What's getting you out of bed to write every day besides the, the looming deadline? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's what gets me excited about writing every day is is honestly the story and the characters, and I mean that's kind of a basic answer, but. Even here in LA, at this conference that we're at, I'm I'm itching to get you know um, writing. Mm-hmm. Like I want to write. Um, so you're one of you you enjoy like sitting down to write. I Not love one of those it. people who's like, oh God, 
No. I actually, I I will say this. I struggle with first drafts. Um, I love the revision process, Mm -hmm. and that's the process I'm in right now with the fantasy I'm doing. And uh, I feel like I'm polishing, you know, like a lump of coal um, slowly, slowly, and then hopefully it'll be some kind of diamond or at least something that resembles a diamond. Um, Some sort of polished (laughs) Some kind of gem. (laughs) Some kind of gem. Maybe it's not a diamond, but... (laughs) Maybe it's costume Something jewelry. Something you could put on a bracelet <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, no, I love it. I especially love the revision part process because that, to me, that's where the real skill in writing, because you're using every skill now. You're using uh, self-editing. You're using writing. You're using revision. You're using developmental editing. I mean, it's tapping into everything. Um, so, and yeah. Have, and you've got something there that you can't just erase. Yeah. For first draft, there's the anxiety of, Maybe exactly. I'm taking this really in the wrong place. Or yeah. This could all fall apart. Yes. Just like that. And my thing is usually my self-doubt is this is the most boring book that's ever been written. Because <laughs> well, uh, it feels boring maybe while you're writing it. Yeah, because you're living in it. And you're like, oh, my God, this book is so boring. I'm putting myself to sleep. And then you don't know. You're like, is this book boring? I can't tell. <laughs> I feel like it's boring. Um, that's usually the thing that goes through my head. Like, um you know, it used to be, oh, this writing is terrible. I don't even know. Am I a good writer? Who can say? That was early on. Now it's like, I think this book is boring. Um, <laughs> well, because the, the, I recently kind of realized how you feel when you're doing something mm-hmm. has almost no relationship to its quality or value mm-hmm. after you're done with it. You You might think this is terrible. And sometimes, you know, you'll think... Oh, this isn't coming. I'm just not going to work on it. Mm-hmm. Or, you, or you'll stop something, and then maybe you look at it later and you're like, "This, what was I, what was I thinking? What's wrong with me?" <laughs> you know? Yes. That absolutely. Divorcing how you feel about a piece of work while you're working on it is very difficult for for a lot of people. I know. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you. Yeah. Especially like early on. Yeah, I think it's that's one of the most fascinating thing to me about writing and writers and, you know, I'm sure with other uh, forms of art it's the same, but, you know, I know writing, so that's what I'm going to talk about. But we tend to do this thing where, like you said, we're writing and we're like, it's a, it's a cycle that repeats itself again and again. You're writing, oh, this is good, this is good. And then you're like, no, this is no good. This is terrible. You put it away. You pick it up later. Oh, I wrote this. This is really good. I'm going to start working on it again. You start working on it, and then you say, this is no good. I mean, it's just so, you know, I don't know what goes on in our brains, but. Isn't there a way to just get to that place where you, you've stopped? Yeah, just, <laughs> stop, yeah. Stop all that, that, get off that train, you're just like, do the work <laughs> without having to deal with your problems every day. <laughs> but you know what? I think that self-doubt is what is what serves good writers well, because that makes you challenge yourself and push yourself. And it, it's, you know, if, if someone comes in and says, I have written the best book you'll ever read, which people have told me when I've taught classes, like my book is for everyone. Everyone will love it. It's a great book. It's never been written. I immediately know that it's probably not going to be as strong as the student who is scared to read aloud their work. Hmm. Because if you don't have that humility and that self-doubt, if you're already fantastic, then what are you working toward, right? Yeah, what's the reward there? Yeah. Right, you have, you don't need to write a book. Yeah, if you think you're great. Yeah, you wrote the you wrote the best book already. So now where are you gonna go? You know, um, yeah. So let's talk about you go first. Your yeah. new book. So are you 
Are you still going around? I'm sure your the Newberry is going to help that book too. Yes, it has actually. They were both on the New York Times list. Um, which Congratulations! Thank by the way. you. That would not have happened without the Newberry for sure. But um, you go first is one of those books that started, you know, started with this idea originally of a girl who wanted to be the youngest uh, Scrabble champion in U.S. history, and the book became something very different. So that was one of the examples of where I started with one image, but the image changed. And the reason it changed is because I started interviewing Scrabble, competitive Scrabble players comp and Scrabble champions. Children or? Uh, no, adults. Mm -hmm. And some, uh, not children, not the age of Charlotte, uh, who's 12, but like teenagers, mm -hmm. 15, 16. I didn't find any people as young as her. And I went to Scrabble tournaments. And um, I realized... The more time I spent doing that, that, that Charlotte was not, uh, Charlotte did not fit that scene. Mm -hmm. The image I had of Charlotte as a character, these, these competitive, uh, fascinating, I mean, super intelligent, smart, interesting people um, at these Scrabble competitions, um, and Scrabble is, is very much their, their passion, and I, I didn't see Charlotte fitting in. You didn't see her there. I didn't see her there. I could not see her there. So I thought, um, this book's going to be something different. Um, and that's how, you know, it came to be. And originally, in the original manuscript, she was going to befriend another kid in the Scrabble Club. Mm -hmm. And that still happened, except that they're 1,500 miles apart in the book. And they're playing online. Um, and Scrabble almost became... Um, a tertiary character in the book instead of the main focus. Yeah. An important part of the book, but not not where all their passion is, either of them. Yeah. No, I, I love this this the this kind of the structure of it, how there's this thing and then the life is kinda of happening off to the side and then you realize actually the comments on the side, that's that's the life. Mm -hmm. And so you develop you, you started out with it one way, and then did the kind of way that it developed developed was that something that you were you felt confident to go with as it was developing before you? Actually, um, I was feeling okay, but I did struggle a lot because usually that doesn't happen. Usually, the image that I originally have it stays pretty true to that, but in this case, it changed. Um, so I kind of lost my footing, and I was writing, and then um, the election happened. Mm. And then I was really thrown off. Um, and um, I know a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we're not trying to be political. But well, it no, a, but yeah. It was a big event. for. A it was a huge event for a lot of reasons, um, which we won't necessarily go down that road. But, but I was very off balance. And so um, I had to get to know. Ben, um, I knew. Uh, ben, Ben, I was like, you know, um, it sounds strange to say this because I wrote Ben, but um, I just want to hug him. He's like my favorite character I've ever written. Um, Charlotte, it took me a, a longer time to get to know her, but once I did, then it then it flowed. But but you go first is one of those books that, you know, my characters tend to be really introspective, and I think that's why I fall into this pit of is this book boring? Because mm. my and some people think they are, which is fine, but. You get because my characters spend so much time living a life and living inside their heads and having the feels. <laughs> you're like, we I call don't it know. Interior, <laughs> interior, interior. Let's look. Yeah. <laughs> Introspective is the word I like to use. Um, 
whenever I finished the the book, I'm I was thinking I really I really like this book. I don't I wonder how it's going to be received. I had no um, I don't think my editor, neither myself nor my editor, had any gauge on would would people like this book? Would people think it was boring? Would people, you know, what's going to happen? Um, but it was very well received, which which is thrilling because I didn't I didn't know what to you never really know what to expect, but sometimes you have an inkling. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I had no inkling, so I was actually I'm, I'm always really excited and thrilled whenever. Um, people give it a shout out on Twitter or yeah. people enjoy it. Yeah. It's really great. Well, it's a lovely book. We just Thank have, you. well, I actually, I'm going to get you out of here. Okay. <laughs> but we've been talking with Aaron Entrada Kelly. It's been just a pleasure to talk with you today. Do you have, not to put you on any spot, do you have any last thoughts for anyone listening? That, any last thing you want to communicate or any, any piece of advice or, you don't, this is an optional question. I, I will say this, that um, this year's, the, the Newberry honorees were all uh, people of color from marginalized groups, diverse, which... Um, we didn't really even get into Yeah, no, that's fine. That. And, but, which is incredibly exciting for me, and I want to say that if you're out there writing, uh, no, matter what background, no matter what your background is, I think one of the, the pitfalls that writers fall into is they, they think they have a good idea, and they may very well have a really great idea, but it needs to be more than a great idea. It has to be something from your heart and the story you were meant to tell and what you have to say. And think about that well of emotions, that things that move you, things that are painful for you to think about, all those kinds of things, and, and find out what your story is. Because if you only write because you think you have a good idea and nothing more, a lot of times that's not enough to keep up the momentum. So whatever your story is, uh, tell it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Thank yeah, you. This was a pleasure. You've been listening to Theo Baker's Conversation with Erin and Trotta Kelly. I'm Lynn Oliver, and on behalf of all of us at SCBWI, thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.